Well, good morning, everybody. We're in the book of Acts. We're doing a series in the book of Acts, and we have arrived at chapter 8. Chapter 8. If you're using the Bible in the pews, I'll give you the page reference for that. 1704. Did I say 1844? 1704. Just checking. And we're making a bit of a transition. We, last week we dealt with Stephen, this Hellenized Jew, who was falsely accused, persecuted, and martyred. And we know that somebody called Saul had a big say in that persecution. And we're going to see more clearly in chapter 8 that Paul is causing persecution for a large part of God's church. Before we open God's Word, let's have a word of prayer. Gracious God, we thank you for this opportunity to interact with you through your Word. We invite your presence. We, we covet the, the presence of the Holy Spirit to be here this morning to open our minds and hearts to truth, and to embrace the truth and be transformed by it, is our prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, so Acts chapter 8, and we will go through to verse 25. I have, on another occasion, I've dealt with Philip witnessing to the Ethiopian eunuch, so I'm not going to deal with that this morning. At the end of chapter 7 and the beginning of chapter 8, it says, And Saul was there giving approval to his death, which was Stephen's death. On that day, a great persecution broke out against the church at Jerusalem, and all except the apostles were scattered. Now Jesus says, in Acts chapter 1, verse 8, which, is, which you could look on as an outline of the book, chapter 1, verse 8, he says, You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my wit- witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So we're starting to see a fulfillment of this scattering, this persecution and scattering of the church and the spreading of the gospel in what is predicted in 1.8 is fulfilled in 8.1. Saul is there given approval. Great persecution is breaking out of the church at Jerusalem. Maybe they, church members, were feeling comfortable in Jerusalem. For whatever reasons, God is allowing persecution to come on the church at Jerusalem. And a certain segment of the church, here it says all. I don't know uh, if we need to qualify that all there. This persecution may have been, as we saw with Stephen, against Hellenized Jews and... um, 
There were two different groups there, as we've mentioned in some of the other sermons. Um, But anyway, the church is clearly being persecuted big time and being scattered thereby throughout Judea. And where else? Samaria. Now, Samaria is something we need to zone in on a little bit because that's where the action is. Philip is going to go to uh, Samaria, whether it be a city of Samaria or the district of Samaria, and God is going to use him, just like he used Stephen, uh, the Hellenized Jew, is going to use Philip, the Hellenized Jew, in a very powerful way. Luke, is, as a historian, is obviously very excited that the, the mission of the church is expanding, and it's reaching a group of people who were really hated by the Jews. If you can think of uh, any sermons you've heard on John chapter 4 with the woman at the well, that was taking place in a place called Samaria. For over 1,000 years, there had been hostility between Jews and Samaritans. Historically, it began with the breakup of the monarchy in the 10th, 10 centuries before Christ. Ten tribes defected, making Samaria their capital. Only two tribes stayed loyal to Jerusalem. By the 8th century, Assyria had invaded the northern kingdom. And by the 6th century before Christ, Jews refused Samaritan help. I think that's the 6th century. I can hardly read my own writing here. Jews refused Samaritan help to rebuild the temple in the 6th century. And then by the 4th century, a temple, a rival temple, was set up on Mount Gerizim. That is mentioned in John chapter 4 by the woman at the well. Samaritans believed only in the Pentateuch. They rejected the prophets. Does God love them any less because they reject the prophets? No. He has a burden for them. He has a burden for the lost. We know that. And he has a burden for these Samaritans. But they were defective in their understanding because they didn't have the prophets. The Jews despised the Samaritans in both race and religion. They looked on them as heretics, as schismatics, and as John 4.9 would imply, as something unclean. So there was this tremendous tension between this strong Jewish church or Jewish society around Jerusalem and Samaria. So bad that that Jews would literally go on a long detour to avoid having anything to do with the Samaritans. If they had to go through Samaritan territory, rather than go the quick way, they would go the roundabout, the long way, because they just wanted nothing. I mean, this is serious, serious prejudice between these two groups of people. So in a way, we're seeing something quite amazing here. Not only are we seeing this wonderful spread of the gospel, as Jesus predicted in chapter 1, verse 8, but we're seeing it in a place called Samaria where there was this open hostility. Now, we do know from John chapter 4 that that they certainly seemed to embrace Jesus. And when things got really, really tough in Jerusalem, Jesus would often go to Samaria to get some breathing space to find 
um, people that were a little bit more receptive. It says in verse 2, kind of summarizing uh, chapter 7, that godly men buried Stephen and mourned deeply for him. Some think that means uh, godly Jewish men who were not Christians. Stephen being held in high repute, both within the church and by some outside of the church. So that was a brave thing for them to do, to mourn openly this man Stephen. And then, of course, Saul, in verse 3, began to destroy the church, going from house to house. He dragged off men and women and put them in prison. Now, it's not going to be very long before Paul becomes the central character in the book of Acts. So here he's being introduced, the end of chapter 7, beginning of chapter 8, and he's going to loom very large with his conversion and with God taking the enemy of the church and making him into the champion of the church. But I don't think I can jump quickly over a text like that because this man had a lot on his conscience. It must be horrendous to, to destroy a family. What happened to the children? We're not told that kind of information, but we had moms and dads, men and women, hauled off to prison. And some of them, if not all of them, would eventually be executed. So we, we see the central character here, Philip, in Samaria, in verse 4. Those who had been scattered preached the word wherever they went. So I like to think of that as gossiping the gospel. Wherever these church members went, they shared Jesus. And when they got to a place like Samaria, we can clearly see with Philip, they got a very positive reception. In verse 5, it says, Philip went down to a city in Samaria, proclaimed the Christ or the Messiah there. And when the crowds heard Philip and saw the miraculous signs that he did, they all paid close attention to what he said. With shrieks, evil spirits came out of many, Many paralytics and cripples were healed, and so there was great joy in that city. Don't you want to bring joy into your community? Share Jesus. It couldn't be simpler, it couldn't be more clear than the way that it's worded here. It's very interesting that when we mention Stephen, who we liken to one of the deacons, Philip, who we liken to one of the deacons, we go back to chapter 6 to, to uh, call them deacons, and I made a big deal at that time when I spoke about those verses, that these, these men are, are given this gift of service. But we mustn't think of them as we normally think of deacons. We must think of them as servants who had gifts given them by God, whether it was gifts to take care of widows, gifts of administration, Gifts to, to socially take care of the church group there in chapter 6. Gifts with Stephen of preaching and teaching and miracles. And now we're seeing something very similar with Philip. The message is given by Luke that all the gifts don't reside in the apostles. If you know anything about church history, you know that that's been a problem. Only the bishops 
who are in the succession of the apostles can pass on the gift by the laying on of hands. Is that what we believe in the Seventh-day Adventist church? No, we don't. But large segments of Christianity do believe in something like that. And they will go to verses that we will deal with in a few minutes to justify that. Here, we see, it seems that there's nothing, everything is good. It ends on the word joy in that city. What Philip preached was true and correct. It was not defective, I don't believe, in any way, shape, or, or form. Miracles were backing it up, just as we saw in the life of Jesus, as we have seen in the life of the apostles, also Stephen, and now Philip. Now we come to another character. We haven't finished with Philip. Someone called Simon. Now for some time, a man named Simon had practiced sorcery in the city and amazed all the people of Samaria. Some people are gullible. Lots of people are gullible. And as I said in the children's story, or at least hinted at it, that this, uh, if this guy was in, in connection with Satan, then we know nothing but bad will come out of it. Today we can wrap it up and package it in lots of different ways. You can be driving to work and seeing fortune tellers on the side of the road. Uh, people, I've had, remember when I was a child, people would want to read my palms. They said, oh, you have such a long lifeline. Boy, that sounded really good when they said that. I mean, you don't want to be told you have a short lifeline and it's curtains in a few years. And uh, as I said earlier, my own childhood and teenage years, getting into spiritism and the Ouija board and so on. Um, I did a little bit of I did a little bit of research on that and um, thought I'd better hadn't shared too much of this with the children to scare them out of, of their wits. Um, but maybe it's, it's valuable to slip it in here. Um, somebody just, some young people just like the Fox sisters. Have you ever heard of the Fox family? Which many spiritists claim them as their own, even though these, these sisters denounce what they did later in life. Um, but, but the spiritist movement doesn't want to know about that. They just said that, that they had a very special mission uh, to spread their message to, to this nation. And they still claim them uh, and, and speak of them in a very, very fond way. But here we're talking about young girls who heard knocking in, in the house there, in their family's house, and then later when they would invite people in and this thing took on a life of its own, they were supposed to, they said that they could use their toes to make clicking sounds. <laughs> so, so whether it's deception, whether it's more than just what we normally think of as deception, there's something more sinister behind it, a massive movement grew out of error. We have truth. Philip is our representative for truth, right? He's preaching Jesus. He's preaching truth. And Simon, he's pretty much preaching himself and error. And at first, the people are amazed at this man, at what he says. 
It says there, he boasted that he was someone great, verse 9, and all the people, high and low, gave him their attention and exclaimed, this man is the divine power known as the great power. And they followed him because he had amazed them for a long time with his magic. If there is fraud and deception, it needs to be exposed. But there is the possibility of spirit mediums, for example. So if you are just kind of open-minded and go into into, uh, the presence of some of these people and they start rattling off, secrets may be known only to you. They start rattling off maybe uh, family member secrets. There's got to be something that's going to hook you in to this. And I've read books of, or about books of people who have studied this for 40, 50 years and are still not convinced, even though they've seen amazing supernatural things happen, they're still not convinced that this source is a good source. What would you do if your child was incurably sick and the spiritists were the only shopping town that could heal that child. How would you deal with stuff like that? Well, here we can clearly see that many, many people were bought into the message and whatever magic this man did. But then we have a contrast with Philip, verse 12. But when they believed... Um, when they believed Philip as he preached the good news of the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ. Notice Philip's not preaching himself. He's not boasting and puffing himself up. He's promoting the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. They were what? Baptized both men and women. Simon himself believed. So this sounds good. And was baptized. And he followed Philip everywhere, astonished by the great signs and miracles he saw. You know, some people were so steeped in tradition in the days of Jesus, some of the, in the Jewish community, he says, if you really have a hard time with my teaching, believe me for the very miracle's sake. When the deaf hear and the lame walk and the dumb speak, believe me because Messiah, the coming one, was supposed to do these things. So miracles and signs have their place in convincing people, but they can come from two sources, from a good source or from a bad source. Well, these gullible people here seem to be embracing the truth here. It seems everything seems fine and dandy up to this point. Even Simon himself, believing and being baptized and astonished at what Philip was able, or God was able to do through Philip. Now it gets a little tricky. When the apostles in Jerusalem heard that Samaria had accepted the word of God, they sent Peter and John to them. So immediately I want to know why. Why are Peter and John sent from Jerusalem I mean, how would you feel, folks, if we were doing an evangelistic series here at the Anderson Church 
and maybe, maybe a group of people who we don't normally win, maybe a gypsy community living uh, temporarily in the area, came in and, and were baptized, and, and the conference president and the treasurer and the conference secretary came down to check it all out. Is this kosher? Is this legit? So, so I have a why question there. Why is this happening? And then I have a bigger why question in the next few verses. When they arrived, they prayed for them that they may receive what? Now this seems to fly in the face of what we know in the book of Acts up to this point. Do you remember when Peter was preaching in, in, in Acts chapter 2? And he said, the promise is for you and for your children. The promise is the gift of the Holy Spirit. Surely when someone believes in Jesus Christ and gets baptized, they receive the Holy Spirit, right? Or am I wrong? Right or wrong? That's normally what happens. And yet here, it seems to be different in some way. So what on earth is going on? And I wish I had uh, a clear definitive answer for you. And I actually think I would need to preach a whole sermon just on those few verses to maybe make it come alive. Here's what I believe. And I, I look on this from my own experience, coming to the Lord Jesus Christ at 20 years of age, and I truly believe that when I came to Jesus, He baptized me in the Holy Spirit. I can't, after many, many years thinking about this and trying to understand it, I can't really explain it any other way. I believe that my baptism, I believe He also zapped me on my baptism. And I believe I received another infilling of the Holy Spirit at my baptism. Is it possible that in these verses here, we have people that have the Holy Spirit in the sense of believing? I mean, nobody believes without the Holy Spirit. And yet do not have the baptism of the Holy Spirit for mission? Some see it that way. Could it be that this was such a momentous event in the life of this Jewish church, very Jerusalem Jewish-centered, and that these, these, this is like the first big missionary expansion here, that the uh, leaders in the church had to come and make sure that everything was, was legit. I do not believe for a minute that anything that Philip preached was defective. I don't see that suggested in the text at all. So if Luke wanted us to conclude, well, Philip tried his best, but really you need Peter and John to finish the job, then I don't believe that. Now, some do, people do believe that. There's lots of different interpretation on these few verses here. You have whole movements. Catholicism is one of them. Anglican Catholics is another group. Even Pentecostals is another group. We have large groups of millions upon millions of Christians who do look at a two-stage manifestation of God. Faith and baptism, in their minds, is one stage. And within Catholicism, the laying on of hands, 
to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit is another stage. Pentecostals believe something similar uh, internally. So is it a two-stage way of getting to know Jesus, or is it a one-stage way of getting to know Jesus? So for me, the one stage would be faith, belief, baptism. Well, no, not baptism. Faith, belief, and the infilling of the Holy Spirit. For me, that's what happened to me. Baptism, another infilling of the Holy Spirit. Baptism, that that's, makes a whole lot of sense to me because you can see with Jesus when he was baptized, I mean, Jesus had the Holy Spirit from the womb to the tomb, right? But Jesus was anointed with the Spirit in a fresh way at his baptism. Why? Because he's starting his public ministry. And in a sense, a Christian is doing the same, starting their public ministry when they get baptized. They're witnesses for Jesus from that point on. They need the gift of the Holy Spirit. So that's kind of easy for me to understand. What I really believe is that the Holy Spirit can come to us before baptism, at baptism, after baptism. I think God is sovereign, and we shouldn't just have a, a neat formula and say it has to be this way, and it cannot be any other way. Though I would say the normal way in Scripture is to believe and to be filled with the Spirit and be baptized. That's the normal way. But it doesn't have to be just that way. Certainly it's not here. And when we get to Acts chapter 19, that's another example where people are believing in Jesus Christ and, or they seem to be believers, they're responding to the, to the message, uh, but they don't know about the gift of the Holy Spirit. So we'll deal with that in chapter 19. And maybe we, when we get to chapter 19, we can give a fuller answer to what is happening here. I have no problem believing that if God in his sovereign wisdom decides to withhold the baptism of the Holy Spirit uh, for mission uh, in this, on this occasion because the leadership of the church in Jerusalem need to come and needed to make sure everything was, was uh, orthodox, was okay. I, I don't really have a problem with that, but it doesn't quite say that in the text, does it? It's kind of looking around for a reasonable way, a rational way of explaining these things. That's maybe not the fullest answer is not really given in the text. Anyway, it says, because the Holy Spirit had not yet come, verse 16, upon any of them, they had simply been baptized into the name of the Lord Jesus. Then Peter and John placed their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Can you see what fun some people would have with this laying on of hands in this text if we misinterpret what Luke is really trying to emphasize. And um, Simon obviously didn't quite get the connection. Let's move on. When Simon saw, verse 18, that the Spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. Now, we have a word in the dictionary from this incident. Does anybody know what that word is? Say it louder. 
simony. Simony. You can look it up in the, in the uh, American English Dictionary, and, and it will talk about uh, people trying to buy ecclesiastical office. Um, I don't know quite what was in Simon's head here uh, when he says, give me also this ability so that everyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Well, Peter, never wants to, never want to mince his words, says, may your money perish with you. Whoa! Because you thought that you could buy the gift of God with money. You have no part or share in this ministry because your heart is not right before God. Repent of the goodness and pray to the Lord. Didn't we just read that this man believed and was baptized? I mean, the water's still dripping around his ears. And he's being rebuked by Peter. Repent of this wickedness. Pray to the Lord. Perhaps he will forgive you for having such a thought in your heart. For I see that you are full of bitterness and captive to sin. Then Simon answered, Pray to the Lord for me so that nothing you've said may happen to me. I don't know if I should interpret that like I interpret Balaam. In the Old Testament, also a man greatly gifted by God. Some of the most beautiful prophecies anywhere in Scripture came forth from Balaam's lips. But his heart was not right with God. That's kind of hard for us to understand that, isn't it? We think that God just anoints the goody-two-shoes. The ones that are really righteous and holy. And oftentimes He does. But here, something is seriously wrong. And I, I'm just grateful that Peter's given him a solution to the problem. He's not just pointing out the problem, he's giving the man a solution. What is the solution? Repent. What does repent mean? Change your mind about this. Repentance is often spoken of that way. Do a U-turn on this one. Perhaps God will forgive you. God wants to forgive you if you will respond to Him the right way. It's very tempting at this point to read all sorts of things into the motivation of Simon. And if you read church history on Simon, uh, they believe that he, uh, or it's, it's suggested in church history that uh, a great movement uh, evolved from this man called Gnosticism and, and a lot of heresies and a lot of false teaching. And I don't necessarily want to read all of that into this man. He obviously was off track. He was being corrected by Peter. Thank God for correction. We need godly correction. Did you know, by the way, that's part of a pastor's work? So before you throw the stones or uh, the rotten tomatoes, just remember, that's part to encourage and to rebuke. So here it's very strong rebuke for Simon. Many others, they had the laying on of hands and they had the gift of the Holy Spirit given to them. But apparently, not so with Simon. And then it concludes with saying, when they had testified, 
This is Peter and John. And proclaimed the word of the Lord, Peter and John returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel in many Samaritan villages. So they didn't just go straight back to Jerusalem to their nest. They go through all these different villages and towns in Samaria preaching the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm grateful for somebody like Philip, who I look on as a real evangelist. He could speak to the large crowds as we see here this morning in Samaria. Mass evangelism. Many people responding. Can you imagine how exciting that must have been for this man and for the early church? And yet as we continue reading in chapter 8, we see him going to the one lone Ethiopian man and doing one-on-one evangelism with that Ethiopian. Flexibility. And yet knowing the message that you should speak and teach, have we learned as Seventh-day Adventists it's all about Jesus? Have we learned that lesson yet? It's been a hard lesson. It's been a hard road for us to go. But we need to learn that. The more we focus on Jesus, the more the Holy Spirit will fall upon us. Jesus said, all Scripture testifies of me. Get a hold of that. Make it a part of you. And and when people can say about us, we can see that they've been with Jesus. What progress we will make in the church. And if some of us do not have a heart that is right with God, well, praise God, we've had it spelt out to us this morning by Peter that we can repent. We can repent of our sins. We can ask God to forgive us our sins, knowing that God is so keen to forgive us our sins. He wants to do that. We don't have to twist his arm to do that. He wants to do that. He has a heart of love, a heart full of grace. He wants to forgive us our sins. It would be nice to know how Simon ended up, but we're not told that in this passage. Uh, maybe not in the rest of Scripture. And perhaps church history is correct that this man really lost his way. But we don't have to, right? And then when we have repented and we have truly given our lives to the Lord Jesus Christ, we're sharing the gospel. We need this anointing of the Holy Spirit. This is a very significant passage that we've dealt with rather quickly. Now, there are some here this morning that want me to go for another hour. But uh, you have to talk with me privately if you have any questions or any, any more issues about this. But to have this anointing of the Holy Spirit, not once, not twice, but over and over in your God. This is the life of God in the soul of man. Jesus likened it to to a fresh, bubbling fountain, like a geyser just bursting up in your life. And to me, it seems this is what the Seventh-day Adventist church needs. Christians who who know what repentance is, who know what it is to to have a heart right with God, and yet know that they need this power of God, this life of God in, in their soul, 
to live the Christian life with all of its challenges, but to also to share the Lord Jesus Christ in a, in a dark community that doesn't seem particularly interested in Him. But maybe we'll get some Samaritan surprises if we try and share Jesus. Let us pray. Gracious God, what we're seeing this morning is the life of Jesus, but manifested in the church. Jesus says, you will do greater works than me. Go and spread the gospel. And Lord, we come before you as a people this morning, perhaps coming from different parts of the world, and yet all having the same need of a heart that's right with you, and a heart that is filled with love and power and full of the Holy Spirit to reach out to our neighbors, to our friends, maybe even to our enemies, and to share the Lord Jesus Christ with them. Lord, may we love you so much that we will pay any price to get Jesus in the marketplace. Help this church to do that, Lord. Show us how as a family to come before you with humility. And we ask for this anointing. In Jesus' name we thank you. Amen.